Hey guys, what do you think we should do about the I-5 bridge? Well, personally, I think we need to come up with a regional vision for transportation that is reflective of our commitment to make the metro sustainable and build a new crossing that supports how we want people to be moving around for the next generation. I mean, sure, but doesn't spending uh, several billion dollars on a freeway widening project sound a lot more fun? Sure. You're listening to Greater Greater Portland on Portland Radio Project 99.1 FM. I'm Xavier D. Stickler. Hello, I'm Bradley Bondi. Hey, I'm Jenna Demmel. And today we're talking about the Interstate Bridge, better known as the I-5 Bridge between Portland, Oregon and Vancouver, Washington, and specifically the not-so-great plan to replace it, known as the Interstate Bridge Replacement Program, or IBR. Yeah, I've been excited for this episode because it's a real hot topic of discussion with all the commutes between Oregon and Washington and all that good stuff. Xavier, are you prepping us for a history lesson now? You know I am. Love it. Let's get to it. Tell us. What do we need to know? Before the uh, bridges were built across the Columbia River, we had uh, ferries run by the Pacific Railway Light and Power Company. Um... Uh, a small bridge took streetcar passengers to Hayden Island, who were then loaded onto a ferry and crossed into Vancouver. Um, then in 1908, we did get a bridge across the river, but it was for freight and passenger trains only. It was built by a mess of companies that all kind of had the name Seattle, Portland, or Spokane in the name. Uh, the era of railroading where you kind of changed your name every other week. Yeah, not that kind of railroading, though, just to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, bad joke. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) So the this uh, rail bridge, I take it uh, you can't ride a bicycle across it. No. So the clearance below this rail bridge, and this is going to be important for later, is only 33 feet. So keep that number in the back of your mind. 33. Got it. Yep. So after a few years of realizing that the river could indeed be spanned by metal, uh, regional leaders in Clark County and Multnomah County built what uh, was known as the Pacific Highway Bridge. It opened in 1917 and just consisted of a single span that had two-way traffic and an electric passenger streetcar between Portland and Vancouver. A train. Indeed, a train. To Vancouver. Yep. Damn, I wish we had that now. Yeah, if only. Um, So another cool fact that I'm just going to nerd out and make you endure is the fact that uh, the train, the distance between train wheels uh, in Vancouver and Portland were actually different. It was standard gauge in Vancouver and a little bit more of a narrow gauge in Portland. And the bridge was actually able to accommodate both types across it. Um, It opened in 1917 to great fanfare. But unfortunately, by 1940, the trains had stopped running. Why did the trains stop running? Just kind of like the era of automobile dominance. Um, the, you know, I think a lot of like urbanists in America, particularly like hunger for the 1920s, like that area, uh, that era of streetcar supremacy. In all reality, that was a, a really shortly lived era in American history. Um, but today, urbanists have a lot of nostalgia because it probably was some of the like best transit mobility years of this country. Yeah, and the wooden cars were really cute. 
<laughs> they're really nice. They're, they're very so good cute. looking. Yeah. Cuz we're all about we're cuz we're all about aesthetic pleasure here in yeah. our transportation, obviously. <laughs> uh so by the late 1950s, uh President Eisenhower was kind of expanding the interstate freeway system and that bridge was identified as an artery that was going to take people across. So what you may actually notice, today's I-5 bridge into Vancouver is actually two separate spans that are nearly identical and look somewhat integrated. The northbound lanes carry the 1917 original structure, and then the uh, identical span was built in 58, just beside it. So we really should be calling it the Interstate 5 Bridges? Um, sure, yeah, I guess. Okay. But, but we won't. <laughs> uh, the other thing to note during this period was uh, the original bridge was just kind of a flat bridge between the shores of Hayden Island and uh, Vancouver, Washington. Uh, it didn't really have any sort of elevation. That's why you had the lift span. To reduce the number of lifts uh, that occur on the bridge on any given day, the 1917 structure was revised, so it kind of had a little bit of a humpback. Uh, giving it a uh, natural high point, or alternatively known as a fixed high point, of 72 feet. So for those of us who are not bridge geeks necessarily, how would you define a lift span? So a lift span is basically uh, anything that's not a fixed span, which really doesn't help you. So uh, let's see. A fixed span is going to be something like the Markham Bridge, right? There's no moving parts. It's just kind of this static structure where a lift span allows ships to pass underneath it because it is able to move somehow. Uh, for our Portland audience, you, we basically have two major types of uh, lift spans. You got your regular lift span, which is where a section of the bridge goes straight up vertical in the air, like the Hawthorne or the Steel. And then you got your bascule, which is your uh, Morrisons, your Burnsides, and that's where the bridge deck kind of opens up. Got it. I think I get it now. So that's pretty much the history of the, the two spans that we have. I guess the only thing to uh, note would be the name, and rather its lack of name. So the 1917 span, uh, do you want to know where that name comes from? Sure, why not? <laughs> so it's called the Interstate Bridge because um, it goes between two states, and it's an interstate <laughs> bridge. Yeah, no, they weren't particularly creative. I can't, I can't believe it. <laughs> was that the first bridge between Oregon and Washington? No, because there was the rail bridge. So why does that one get the interstate? And there was also the Wenatachee, I think it's called, up in like eastern Washington. But generally speaking, um, Portland and Vancouver were much, much smaller. So it's kind of one of those situations where they just called it the bridge. Um and so it's just the interstate bridge. And then the road that led up to it, would you like to know what that was called? I think I know. Interstate Avenue. Oh, yeah, duh, of course. I live close to Interstate Avenue. I should know this. <laughs> yeah, so, um, and then when we got the interstate highway system uh, in it, that was routed across the bridge, for some reason we just didn't name it after anyone. So it's, it's very confusingly just called the interstate bridge. So... Uh, what's your guys' opinion of the bridge? It sucks. Yeah. Yeah, not good. I hate it. It's awful. <laughs> it's I think so Bradley, sketchy. I, I think, Bradley, since you're a cyclist, you have other different reasons for hating it than like, me as a regular motorist. But um... Well, I, I've driven across it once. 
Um, and it was very scary. I was terrified. Yeah, yeah, it is a little scary. And also even scarier if you get stuck in traffic for an hour or more. Uh, actually, I have a little anecdote about that. A few days ago, I made the mistake of ordering Burgerville from Vancouver. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, no, so I'm just waiting, being like, okay, said it was coming at 2.30. It's way past 2.30. It's 3.09. Okay, where the hell's my food? ETD 3.30. And so I messaged the guy and I'm like, dude, where are you? And like 20 minutes go by and he's like, sorry, I was stuck in traffic. And I'm like, well, oh, I'm not going to get my guy. food. I know, pro very poor guy. I gave him a good tip for that because, yeah, that just freaking sucks. So, yeah, congestion is bad in rush hour and not on in rush hour, apparently. Yeah, I would say most drivers in this region uh, kind of know the I-5 bridge simply because it's unbelievably unreliable and it has suffers from chronic congestion. Um, so there are a few technical reasons I'm going to get into behind the chronic congestion. So we talked originally about the 1917 span being uh, two lanes of traffic, one in each direction. Um, you may notice that today it's since been expanded to three lanes. So the bridge has more lanes than it was intended to. Uh, basically what that means is that the lanes have to be narrower to actually fit on the span. Uh, so the lane width is something that is really important for driver psychology. If you're in a narrower lane, you're probably going to be driving a lot slower because the cars are a lot closer to you. So the lanes on the bridge are substandard in terms of their width. And I, I, I can't help but notice that um, new cars are probably much wider than those old-timey cars were. Yeah, yeah. No, your chud dozer is going to be a little bit bigger than your Model T. Yeah. <laughs> so there are other issues with kind of the, the general design that it could be argued needs to be tinkered with. Um, the on-ramps are really close together. General spacing on your average interstate today is going to be about you want a mile between your uh, on and off ramps at least. It's definitely not that. <laughs> it's definitely not that. So you're averaging between your Victory Boulevard exit, which is going to be your Delta Park area, um, up to Marine Drive where MLK intersects with it, then on to Hayden Island, then on to Highway 14 in Washington and downtown Vancouver. You're averaging about a half a mile to even down to a third of a mile. Um, even beyond that, the on-ramps themselves are ridiculously short. Um, the one on uh, Hayden Island to get back into Vancouver is more or less about 40 feet, which is a magnitude shorter than you might like it to be. So you got about 40 feet to get up to highway speed. That's that's That seems safe. You got to floor yeah, it. Yeah, you got about... 40 feet to convince someone to let you in on I-5. <laughs> Which, with anybody who's driving on the interstate bridge, you'll be lucky if you can even squeeze in a car length. Yeah, and then even beyond all this, there's just the fact that, like, people drive slower on bridges because they're like, ooh, I'm on a bridge. And I-5 has great, like, sight lines of Mount Hood. That sounds like drivers not looking at the road. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, I think it's pretty common that if you're on like I-5 northbound, for example, the second you like pass the Highway 14 off-ramp, traffic clears up, right? The bridge is just this enormous bottleneck. So that kind of gets up into the technical issue, the technical details of why the bridge sucks from a motorist perspective. 
but even beyond that, it's not a particularly modern bridge because it, there is no dedicated right-of-way for transit in between Portland and its largest suburb, Vancouver. Um, the only transit options if you're trying to get between Multnomah and Clark counties is buses that are running in mixed traffic and don't have any sort of lane priority at all. There's also the issue of the fact that the bridge is not going to survive an earthquake. Yeah, no, um, we have in our notes here uh, for researching the subject was it's going to freaking collapse into the gosh darn Columbia when the earthquake hits. And um, I'm censoring myself because, um, you know, the FCC will come get us. But anyways, uh, yeah, when the earthquake hits, it's not earthquake safe. And even beyond that, from like a non-seismic resilience perspective, um, the bridge is just a hassle. Again, because it has a lift span and isn't fixed, that means there are moving parts which means it is uh, relatively high maintenance. It's a little bit of a diva infrastructure. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. I like it though. And then um, finally, you know, as the region attempts to move to more sustainable modes of transportation, um, especially in this beautiful view corridor with the downtown Vancouver waterfront, um, another thing that has a lot of people very passionate is that it was really awful to try and walk across the I-5 bridge. <laughs> or ride a bicycle. It's very yeah. scary. Yeah, can you describe that for me? Because I'm not really familiar with the pedestrian layout, probably because whenever I've driven there, I'm only staying in my lane, so to speak. Okay, so you're walking across the bridge, right? You got about three feet for most of the length, but the sidewalk is constantly like intersected by the steel girders of the bridge so it like narrows down to like super narrow right and so if you're walking across that and there's someone riding their bike coming the other way you gotta like squeeze yourself up against the railing suck in your gut let them pass um and if even if someone's just walking right it's kind of like in some spots just someone walking the other way you gotta like kind of like go by each other all awkward be like ooh, ooh sorry excuse me <laughs> sounds like a fun time also it's very loud yeah with x amount of lanes of traffic would you say it's worse than trying to walk across the 205 yes really that's a hot take okay so the glenn jackson the glenn jackson sucks it's bad it's awful i hate using it but at least the path is wide so you're not like trying to like squeeze on by other people and also you don't have the ever the ever present feeling that you're going to fly you're just going to get blown off into the river. <laughs> Wee. Or or if you're like riding your bicycle, right? You got to go real slow cuz if you like clip your handlebars on like the railing, you'll just fly off. Yeah, and ET won't be there to save you. <laughs> Basically, I think the general consensus is the current structure sucks. Motorists don't like it. It's actively hostile towards transit, and it's not very safe or fun to walk across or ride across as a pedestrian or bicyclist. So these, pro these problems have been known for a while, and understandably, there's kind of been this long-term effort to think about, well, what kind of crossing do we want here next? Unfortunately, a lot of that discussion has been with alternatives for a replacement that is uh, bad. 
unfortunately, this discussion is being led by the Oregon Department of Transportation. Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's it's the meme of the guy uh, stressing out over which button to press, and the guy is ODOT, but both buttons are um, widened freeway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm picturing it now. Sweat drops. <laughs> So it would be very hard to talk about the interstate bridge uh, replacement program without essentially talking about what it's most more or less a rehashing of, which is the Columbia River Crossing. I've heard tell of this once, but I would like to know more. So in 2005, regional leaders got together and basically said it's time to get serious about replacing these um very old structures. The bridge that was built in 58 had a lifespan of 50 years, and the 1917 bridge had been repaired quite a bit. It's still structurally satisfactory for day-to-day -day operations, but it's clear that we need something that allows the region to move a little bit differently. Environmental be review began in 2008, and they were working towards an opening date of 2012. And then uh, 2014, and then 2016. And you may notice that the span that we have between Portland and Vancouver is not called the Columbia River Crossing. Um, that's because as much as people dislike the current span, I would say it's fair to say they hated the CRC even more. Yeah, I would guess so since it's been 10 years. <laughs> so, the opposition to the CRC was kind of a constellation of factors. There was strong opposition on kind of the both the right and the left. Conservatives in Clark County had a lot of concerns about the inclusion of light rail as part of the project. TriMet and uh, ODOT planned to take an extension of the Max Orange Line into Vancouver to Clark College um, as part of the bridge project. And uh, lawmakers uh, kind of basically called light rail, and this is verbatim, an ideological conspiracy. <laughs> Squeeze me? <laughs> yeah, so a lot of Republicans in Clark County basically came to the conclusion that adding light rail was simultaneously going to be so successful that it was going to, quote unquote, bail out bankrupt TriMet, which isn't true. <laughs> and it was also unnecessary because no one was going to write it. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of like coherency on the opposition. It was a lot of reactionary sentiment that's just kind of like anti-transit. And it did add to the cost of the project because taking um, rail into it does add some level of um, engineering complexity to the project. Um, so uh, a lot of Republicans in Clark County were opposed to there being that dedicated transit row. On the flip side, you have environmentalists, mostly in Portland, who objected to the amount of vehicle capacity it was going to add to the roadway. Um, right now, you have three lanes in each direction, northbound and southbound. Without looking at the notes, would you like to guess how many lanes the new bridge was supposed to have? So I'm thinking Houston, Katy Freeway, 20 lanes each way. Yikes. I hope not. Okay, yeah. So it wasn't going to be that bad, but it was going to be um, six through lanes in each direction. Now, as a reference point, you may notice that there are only three lanes in each direction going through North Portland. 
Um, so a lot of environmentalists were very concerned that by building this bridge, we're essentially mandating a freeway widening through, especially was at the time, Portland's most diverse neighborhood. And in be even beyond that, like at Hayden Island, where they were planning a huge interchange, it was going to be 17 lanes and a cross section, which is um, really, really wide. That sounds unpleasant to live around. That sounds like it would be a mile wide. That's 5,280 feet wide. That's a lot of feet. That's too many feet for <laughs> freeways. <laughs> yeah, what's a little confusing is right now the land use on Hayden Island is um, like big box store centric. Hayden Island is a very unique position in that it's close enough for a lot of Clark County residents to come into Oregon to shop to avoid the sales tax and then pop back on the bridge and go back home. However, Hayden Island is more than just the shopping center. There are a lot of people, especially low-income individuals, who live on it. Um, and I guess the thing that has always perplexed me the most about the size of the interchange was so much of those, so many of those businesses were going to be displaced to make way for the interchange that I really don't know who the interchange was for anymore. Me neither. That's that's a capitalist puzzle conundrum if i do say so finally it would be very hard to talk about the objection to the crc without in talking about induced demand mm, so i know what both of those words mean individually induced and demand but uh what do they mean together so induced demand is um the best way i have found to explain induced demand is to affirm your like intuitive thought that like roadway congestion is a function of supply and demand, but in the opposite direction as you might think. Humans respond to incentives, right? You're not assigned at birth a driver or a bus rider. You make the decision on which modality to use based upon um, which is more convenient to you. So by increasing the supply of the roadway, you're actually just making it easier for more people to drive. Increasing the supply does not relieve congestion because there's no predetermined number of drivers. You're instead just creating new ones. Um, our knowledge of induced demand frustratingly goes back to some of America's first automotive infrastructure in Manhattan in the 40s. It kind of goes back to uh, planners under Robert Moses, who noticed that every time they built a bridge or a tunnel between New York and New Jersey, to relieve congestion on the previous tunnel or bridge that they've built, um, it would become equally as congested and then they would build another one and that one be would become congested as well. Um, all that you do when you expand road capacity is make it easier for people to go between two places, which is fine, but in many cases you're also just like taking drivers and putting them, or taking transit riders and putting them into cars. This manifests in a lot of ways that is kind of even less direct. If you have more and more drivers, that means that your urban design becomes more and more auto-oriented. It becomes more and more hostile to walk places. Transit becomes more and more delayed. And suddenly you've just created this entire infrastructure to support a culture that really necessitates a car. Um, a lot of people feel as though that when they get behind the wheel that they've more or less, quote unquote, made that choice. But again, they're responding to a set of incentives. 
they're incentivized to drive a car because it sucks to walk places and transit takes forever. That's not an accident. That's not a natural point. That is the product of the infrastructure that we've built. So the concerns among environmentalists in Portland was basically that if you kind of perpetuate this very negative trend that we've had in this country for 80 years or so, if you just continue to increase that roadway capacity, you're not only going to create a lot more congestion, ultimately, you're going to create a lot more traffic through North Portland, which is going to create even more polluted air. And with Clark County's um, I would say relatively laxed land use and urban growth management, at least compared to Portland, we're just going to be building more sprawl. Just from the outset, it sounds a little bit like a dystopian nightmare, not only a waste of money, but also uh, more smog, more emissions. Yay. All in the name of just one more lane. Speaking of a waste of money. Um, that's ultimately the thing, though, that held up this project. Um, even though Clark County residents had a lot of objection to including light rail and a lot of Multnomah County residents were deeply concerned about sprawl and induced demand, what ultimately did the project in was its unreasonable price tag. Um, at the time, the figures were between 3 and $4 billion. Uh, and in 2012, Washington State Senate Republicans refused to advance a bill that would continue funding the project. Um, it's important to note that after $140 million from the federal government had already been spent planning various iterations of the Columbia River Crossing. They, they oh. spent $140 million without building anything? Yes, which is uh, something that the federal government is not particularly appreciative of. Um, now, that $140 million actually came out of a pool of almost $400 million which was granted to the states by the federal government um, and either has to be returned or go towards planning a new bridge, which is kind of why the states are so gung-ho on IBR. There are also uh, some other technical aspects of the project that I think are worth talking about because they are going to be important to understanding why IBR is as problematic as it is. And that would be because in 2010, the Coast Guard entered the chat. Ooh, and how'd okay. this go? <laughs> Everyone's favorite branch of the military. Certainly mine. <laughs> I mean, like, actually, though, they're pretty great. They rescue people. I do like boats. But that's another story for another day. <laughs> yeah, so the Coast Guard has exclusive jurisdiction over the clearance of major navigable waterways on the Columbia. So that is basically how tall can ships be to cross under certain bridges. Right now, your max height for a ship on the I-5 bridge is 178 feet. The CRC did a lot of engineering and at first promised that they could get away with 95 feet. That was ultimately revised to 116 feet, which caused a lot of lawsuits, both from shippers on the channel who said that that height was too low, and would negatively affect the type of ships that they could bring through, and also led to lawsuits by residents on Hayden Island who objected to a much, much taller bridge uh, polluting or causing more air quality issues and noise pollution. Yeah, understandable. Finally, there was a debate around like, who does this bridge benefit really? Which I think maybe exacerbated some existing like, Oregon-Washington rivalry. 
Um, the best estimates from the commission uh, indicated that only 25 to 32 percent of trips made on the bridge were going to be through trips, basically meaning people driving from like the southern tip of, the, of Portland to like the northern tip of Clark County. 25 to 33% isn't a negligible number, and you can tell that it's very important for freight, but that the vast majority of use on this bridge was gonna be for commuters. And that led to the issue of should Clark County, the people who are going to be disproportionately benefited by this bridge, have to pay a toll to cross it. Clark County residents said absolutely not. Oregon residents said absolutely. And that just went into the giant pot around why the CRC didn't work out. There were also a lot of alternatives being proposed to the CRC that got a lot of attention by the public at the time, if not regional planners. So like just some guys came up with some ideas? Um, so Jim Howell, uh, who was a former planner at TriMet and one of the original planners for the MAC system, along with a architect, come, came up with what's called the common sense alternative. Um, and it is a framework that I think has a, a lasting legacy to this day and is one that we need to be moving towards. But it is definitely something that Oda does not like you bringing up. What makes it such a sweet deal, do you think? The common sense alternative tried to solve one of the major issues with the existing bridge and why it raises up and down so much. So right now, the fixed high point of the bridge, so that's the part that does not move, that ships can just easily pass through without any bridge lifts, is 72 feet. Between 90 to 99% of ships that go under the I-5 bridge are well below that height. The issue is, is that the Burlington Northern 9.6 mile bridge, as we talked about earlier in the episode, that's downstream, the opening swing gate for that... 33 feet. You told me to rem remember 33 feet. Yes. The opening swing gate for that is right against the northern shore in Vancouver. The fixed high point of the I-5 bridge is in the middle of the river. If you've ever, you know, dined on the Columbia, a lot of the river traffic is... Uh, barges, multiple at a time, being pushed by tugs. In the particularly fast-moving Columbia, it's very difficult for those tugs within about the three-quarter mile to go from the middle of the river to swing up and be able to make it through the BNSF swing gate on that rail bridge. So they're having to go from like the middle to the very edge of the river? Yeah, so this is basically called like the S-curve problem. It's the fact that a lot of ships could technically fit under the I-5 bridge without needing to raise it, but that ultimately uh, they can't maneuver in the fast-moving channel. So the common sense alternative sought to reduce the amount of lifts by putting another opening segment on the rail bridge mid-channel so that ships could just go straight through. Um, additionally, the common sense alternative called for um, a new passenger rail bridge and a new maybe transit-only bridge. Um, there were several iterations of this plan that basically just said, we do not need to spend three to four billion dollars doing what is largely uh, like a freeway tinkering project because most of the cost for this project was gonna be dedicated towards 
revising the on and off ramps several miles south and several miles north. The common sense alternative brought a lot of multimodality and basically a much larger rethink of how regional freight and passenger service should move. That is more than just kind of make more car capacity. So why did uh, why didn't we build that one instead? That's a very good question. Um, I think it's because ultimately there's just so much institutional momentum behind doing what we've done for the last 80 years. You have a lot of state lawmakers who are fairly upfront about the fact that they kind of don't have a lot of optimism in being able to make the sort of fundamental transportation shifts we need to in order to become a more sustainable region, um, which I think is not only horribly cynical, but like patently disprovable. And this project offers up an opportunity to genuinely do some groundbreaking work and restore Portland on the kind of vanguard of sustainability that we've fallen back from the last 10 years. But it's just a matter of overcoming all this institutional pressure to not do that. So there's like a bunch of guys at ODOT who are just old and stuck in their ways? Or is this more complex than that? I would say the largest like corporatist entity pushing for a new bridge is a consortium of housing developers in suburban Clark County. People who are fed up with traffic and think that expanded road capacity is the way to fix it. And then the freight industry. So we just talked about the CSA. Um, we talked about the failed CRC. Lots of things with initialisms up in here. What about the juicy details of the current IBR proposal and how does this all relate? Oh man, I just wish we could have someone to talk more about it with. And we might just get that opportunity in our next episode because surprise, this is a two-parter. What? Oh my God, I can't believe it. It's like we didn't plan this or anything. And with that out of the way, Bradley, Jenna, where can they find us on the interwebs? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Bondi underscore Bradley. And I'm on Instagram at JKMDEM, J-A-Y-K-A-Y-E-M-D-E-M. And I'm on Twitter at Xavier D. Stickler. Uh, and with that, that's an episode. Thank you so much for joining us today on Greater Greater Portland. Uh, we'll see you next time. Now, if you'd like to keep up with the show, you can do so on prp.fm, as well as Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also be able to find full-length videos with graphics and slides alongside our episodes on YouTube at the channel Greater Greater Portland. For just $2 a month, you can also help us in our mission of making Portland a better place to live, as well as get access to exclusive written works. And of course, you can listen to us live and in stereo on 99.1 FM Portland Radio Project every second and third Sundays at 4 p.m. <laughs> That's the sound the Max makes. <laughs> yeah.